Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. All right, the moment has arrived. We are ready to talk about Speak. I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, but before we move any further, we should acknowledge that we have a guest for this episode, Brenna. We have a guest expert for this episode. Uh, Lucy Lorenzi, in addition to being at Empathy Warrior on Twitter and one of my favorite people, also like researches about, you know, perpetrator narratives and sexual violence and she's an activist with a long history and she's read and watched speak and is here to talk with us about it hi lucia hi friends how's it going going really well really excited it's 7 a.m and we're going to talk about rape um that just keeps me real alert in the morning (laughs) i uh i gotta say for nobody else would i do this Thank you. I do appreciate it. I recognize that our recording time slot on the West Coast is a little bit insane. It's a little mean-spirited. But I got to get a toddler to swim classes for nine, so what do y'all want from me? <laughs> I thought it was 10. It is 10, but I have to get in the shower at nine if I'm going to get him to the class at 10. A parent who showers? Please. <laughs> it's only because I have to go to the pool. Social convention means I have to shave my legs. It's the worst. <laughs> All right, well, that is a topic for another time. Yeah. <laughs> Next time we're ranting about the patriarchy, remind me about how going to the public pool is like a whole thing. Anyway. Anyway. So we're talking about Speak, the book from 1999 and the film, Joe, I want to say 2005, judging by the flood on the pants. You are very close. It's 2004. All right. And I also read the comic book adaptation by Emily Carroll. So I want to talk about that a little bit today as well. Yes, potential award-winning comic book. It's fantastic, and the style... Well, I'll talk about this when we get to the adaptation, but there's a bunch of reasons why I actually think the comic book makes for a more effective adaptation than the film can be, just just because of, like, issues of the medium. So we Mm. could talk about all that. But first... But first... We have homework, and we have a guest who did her homework. So should we start with Lucia? Absolutely. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure that I had an idea of what homework was, and now I'm second-guessing myself. So I'll start with my very fun fact of trivia, which is that when you Google Speak 2004, it also brings you to the Lindsay Lohan album of the same name. Oh, dear. I guarantee you we have listeners who A, either already knew that, or B, are very excited by that content. 100%. rumors still slaps as a tune so yeah Lindsay Lohan man like that is just one of the many stories of how we as a culture really really let a young woman just be destroyed oh a hundred percent so we covered her not great vehicle I know who killed me for my other podcast Mm -hmm. and we covered a part of her career over about a four-year span and just the way that she was treated It's actually infuriating, even if you do or do not like Lindsay Lohan as a person, as a starlet who was manufactured and then just cast away like garbage, Mm. it's horrifying. Well, and it's kind of fascinating if you, I mean, you can always do this, but you can look at the the young women who 
were offered some measure of protection for whatever reason. I always think that the Lindsay Lohan Hillary Duff dynamic is an interesting mm-hmm. like we all decided as a society that Hillary Duff was a good girl and Lindsay Lohan was a bad girl. And yeah. so Hillary Duff we would shepherd into adulthood healthily and Lindsay Lohan we would throw to the dogs. And like based on what did we decide that? I don't know. One stayed with Disney longer. It's horrifying. It's just horrifying. Ugh. It's fitting for talking about speak, though, this idea of like the disposable nature of young women and their bodies and how they're viewed by the people around them. Yeah, it sure is. It's going to be such a good hour. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, these are important topics. They are important topics. It's why we do the show. And every week can't be... I was trying to think of a week where we haven't talked about horrifying things befalling (laughs) teenage girls. And it's really... I'm not... It is a crap shoot. Yes. (laughs) One of these weeks, we're going to get to do the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, and it'll just be like a big celebration. A character gets sexually assaulted in the third Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. (laughs) (laughs) To be clear, society, I'm not laughing at the books or at sexual violence. I'm laughing at your poor choices as society. Okay. Joe, did you do homework? No, I think Lucia said she had a second one. Oh, that's right. Sorry, Lucia. Yeah, so I was trying to think about what I had. I don't read a lot. I mean, I allegedly have a PhD in literature. Oh, that just means that you've jumped through a lot of hoops for old white men. Yeah, and the hoops (laughs) include actually reading books. But a book that I did read a couple of years ago, I read it all in one go on like Christmas Day or something. It's Piecing Me Together by Renee Watson. Oh, I I haven't heard of it. And the reason I thought of it is because it's another book that's like, art will change your life. Uh, and yes. look what art can do for you. But in a really beautiful way. So it's about a young, a young black student in high school named Jade. She lives in Portland. And she ends up at this very fancy private school where by virtue of class and also the demographic of Portland, Oregon, where I think 1% of the population is black. Mm-hmm. It's a really white school. And she's really smart, and she knows that succeeding academically will offer her certain opportunities. But she's also a really brilliant visual artist. And anyway, through the course of the book, she gets paired up with this other black woman in this mentorship program. And the book is kind of about what happens when, what are the benefits of mentorship? And I think in terms of YA, it provides a really interesting dynamic. It's not, you know, a mentor isn't a teacher. It's not a parent. It's someone someone else. And so you see that conflict of... You know, is this somebody that I want to grow up to be like? Are they mm. a peer? Are they not? Mm. Yeah, it's also just a really, really beautiful, well-written book. It won, I think it won a Newbery Honor Prize in the Coretta Ooh, Scott mm. King Award, I believe. Highly, highly recommend. Like, read it in a couple of hours because it was so absolutely beautiful. So wow. if you're into art will change your life for reasons, highly recommend. Oh, okay. I love that recommendation. We also, we don't see enough different models of mentorship in YA like it's Mm -hmm. there's a cool teacher right Uh, there's there's, a bingo slot (laughs) uh there's like the family member who's maybe not your direct parent but someone just like peripheral who you can confide in but Mm -hmm. there aren't a lot of there aren't a lot of models of where kids go to find mentorship when those models don't work for them so i love the idea of a book that's framed around that kind of relationship i think that's really Mm -hmm. important yeah i feel like brenna you've been seeking that out in a couple of different texts because you talked about uh, i'm not going to be able to remember the titles but you talked about one where somebody gets into i think 
sports, but then there was another one where they got into uh, some kind of art. Oh, was it the slam poetry one? Yes, the, maybe that was it. The poet X. Yeah, you're right. Um, and in that case, it's it's a teacher, but it's a teacher sort of outside of the framework of school, typically. Yeah, this is cool. Can, Lucy, can you give us the title again? Yeah, piecing me together. Awesome. Bye, Renee Watson. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. And I should say that I I got it. Well, my sister loaned it to me, but she got it through the call number subscription box, which is a subscription box based out of the U.S. And you can get a nonfiction or a fiction box, and it's all it's all books by Black authors, <gasps> oh, which really? is amazing. And I've gotten a couple of YA um, books. I haven't read them all, but yeah, it's it's a really amazing way because you know one of the things that I've sort of been talking about peripherally is the fact that you know I did a PhD in Canadian literature and actually didn't read a lot of literature by Black authors featuring no. Black characters, and mm. so it's pretty cool to have a subscription box that as an adult I can. Kind of read the stuff that I wish that I had read when I was, you know, like 11, 12, 13. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. I feel like as adults, we spend a lot of time trying to catch up on things that we wish we had have had the opportunity to read. Definitely. And you read those books and you're like, oh, this really would have resonated with me when I was 16. <laughs> Where was yep. it? Thanks for that, Lucia. Brenna, do you want to go next? I will. I will go next. Um, Mine is not something that I read because I uh, didn't read anything other than a lot of speak this week. But yes, so I brought up the podcast Unreserved on the show several times because I listen to it every week and it's great. And they often talk about books and they talked about one that I thought I would bring up apropos of our Nancy Drew discussion the other day. Oh, really? Okay. Um, And that is that there's a writer named Michael Hutchison. And he is writing a series of books. The first one is out and the next one comes out in January. And he describes them as an indigenous Hardy Boys series. Nice. So they're called the Mighty Muskrats. And the first book is called The Case of Windy Lake. And it's out now. So the premise of it is that um, an archaeologist has gone missing. And so the entire community of the Windy Lake First Nation, where these books take place, mobilizes to look for them. And basically the boys have to figure out how to kind of integrate the contemporary searching techniques and like the clues that the police have access to with wisdom from their elders to actually find the guy who's gone missing. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that Hutchison has talked about, and Hutchison himself is a member of the Missy Patwasik Cree Nation, and he talks about the importance of updating that kind of adventuresome, like, Hardy Boys attitude to actually have the boys confront actual contemporary issues. So he talks about the importance of, like, reflecting his own culture in the experiences that the boys have. He talks about the boys having to sort of make sense of difference of opinion, they have to make sense of different worldviews, um, and sort of the books are as much about their negotiation of that as they are about solving the mystery, because they have to negotiate that in order to be able to solve the mystery. Right. So the second one is going to be called The Case of the Missing Auntie, and it's out, I believe, this coming January or February. Hmm. So yeah, anyway, uh, if you listen to not last week's Unreserved episode, but the one that went up on... October 18th, you can hear an interview with the author, uh, and he describes it. He makes it sound 
a lot more fun than the Hardy Boys. So <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> I am going to uh, check this out for sure. And I just haven't had a chance yet. But I wanted to let people know also because it sounds like the kind of thing that would make a really good Christmas present for a middle grader in your life. So uh, yeah. the series is called The Mighty Muskrats. The author is Michael Hutchison. And the first one is The Case of Windy Lake. Nice. I love that he's even using the title versions of the Hardy Boys that are so familiar. Yeah, and the books, they're put out by a small press. They don't look identical to Hardy Boys books, but they have that same sort of, the cover of this one is, it's the four boys on a boat, and it's the illustration is very much in that old school kind of Hardy Boys vein. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's a really neat idea. And, you know, we were talking about how desperately Nancy Drew seems to not... <laughs> reflect <laughs> contemporary experiences so she just i just <laughs> can't adapt to the modern world that nancy Drew. <laughs> so i'm excited to check out what michael hutchison does with the format very cool very mm -hmm. cool okay so i am trying to tackle another book off of our ya forecast list oh you're so much better at remembering to read the stuff we say we're gonna read than i am uh, it's mostly just in between some of this heavy stuff that we've been doing on the podcast. I've been mm -hmm. looking at the list of what are fun things that offer a bit more escapism. Fair. So I have begun reading The Babysitter's Coven. Ooh. Basically, it's a cross between Buffy the Vampire Slayer and, you know, The Babysitter's Club, more or less. <laughs> so this is a book, I believe it's the first in what is planned to be either a series or maybe a trilogy by Kate Williams. And it's more or less exactly what you would expect. So it's a girl who is in high school. She has a best friend. They're part of a babysitting club. And something strange befalls her one night while she's babysitting. And that happens to coincide at the same time as a new student arrives. And <gasps> this new student is interesting and dynamic and different from everybody else they end up becoming friends and it's revealed that they share a kind of magical lineage through their families and there's something larger and more nefarious at work that uh, they must band together and solve Ooh, is this yeah. like the craft but oh, with does. babysitters <laughs> <laughs> a little bit yeah so i'm i'm not that far into it i think i've only just met this new girl named cassandra but i think one of the things that i really like about it is that the tone is just very fun and approachable and the main character esme just has a great voice that immediately lures you in so i'm liking it i i don't know whether or not it'll all pan out well but for now yeah babysitter's coming it's fun poor joe has had several experiences so far where books that he forecasted mm -hmm. about have started <laughs> off really strong and then wildly disappointed him at the end i mean i'm hard to please i acknowledge that <laughs> i hope this one is good joe i really do i also hope so you've earned a win Regardless of how it plays out, I think I'm going to try a Max pick. Oh, yeah. Good idea. Max writes in with really good recommendations for us, and they are always excellent choices. Mm -hmm. Cool. See, yeah. this is why, see, if you don't read, you don't get your hopes up. <laughs> <laughs> Which is true. But then we would also not have a podcast. It's also very true. Yeah. It could just be a podcast where we talk about books we might one day read, because I'm really good at that. Same. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's probably a bit more relatable for a lot of people. <laughs> I had such grand ambitions. Oh, man. 
Okay, well, why don't we transition over and begin talking about Speak? Okay, okay. So I get to give the plot summary, but first, <laughs> Lucia texted me the best joke last night okay. about my plot summaries. <laughs> okay. I'm like workshopping this joke, so I'm going to workshop it here. But one of my favorite trolling of Brenna's, trollings of Brenna, is about her granular summaries. And so I texted Brenna and said, hey, baby, are you sand? Because I really like how granular your summaries are. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Brenna, it's leaking out into the real world. (laughs) Uh, It's so good, though. (laughs) So good. Okay, so I (laughs) go for it. I'm going to try really hard to not get granular here. Why do I waste time saying that at the beginning of each summary? Okay, anyway, so our protagonist, Speak, is the story of a protagonist named Melinda Sordino, and she is about to start high school. And I guess we meet her on just about the first day, first bus ride to high school. But she's starting out as a social pariah because at the big football guy party of August, right before they all went back to school, Melinda called the cops. And... Nobody knows why she called the cops. She didn't stick around to speak to the police. She went directly home afterwards. And so uh, a lot of people got busted for underage drinking. And she is starting school with no friends, no social network, nothing. So Melinda meets a girl named Heather on the first day of school. And Heather is a gigantic pain in the ass, but Melinda doesn't have any other friends. So they start palling around together. But as the semester progresses, things don't get any better for Melinda. She realizes that Heather is trying desperately to socially climb and will get out of her friendship with Melinda as soon as she sees any viable opportunity. People at school bully her. And as the narrative progresses, we discover what happened at the high school party before the start of ninth grade, which is that uh, Melinda was raped by a boy named Andy Evans. She starts off calling him It and then the Beast, and then Andy. And so he's still at the high school. And every time, it seems like every time she just starts to kind of relax into herself for a moment, she sees him again. So on top of all of that, she's got a difficult family dynamic at home. Uh, Her parents clearly do not get along, and they don't understand her. And Melinda has really withdrawn into herself. So she's basically selectively mute. She does speak enough so that people don't actually take her to get any kind of care or help, but she really does withdraw into herself. And she has kind of two shining lights. She has art class, where she's been assigned to draw a tree for the whole semester, and her teacher is someone who pushes her to find ways to express herself. She also has her lab partner, David Petrakis, who is socially justicely minded young man who stands up to one of the teachers and gives Melinda a whole bunch of hope about what might be possible. The climax of the book comes around the fact that Melinda's ex-best friend, Rachel, is now dating Uh, Andy. uh, uh, Rochelle, sorry. (laughs) Rachel has started hanging out with the foreign exchange students and calling herself Rochelle. So weird. (laughs) So something a high school girl does, though. Oh, my God. And so she's dating Andy, and Melinda decides that she has to try to warn Rochelle about Andy. And so she does. She tells Rochelle what happened at the party in the summer. She tells Rochelle that she was raped. And while at first 
Rochelle Rachel feels sympathy when Melinda discloses that it was Andy, she freaks out and says, you're just jealous. And there's a whole big thing. But it clearly plants a seed for Ooh, Rachel. Oh, I see what you did there. Oh, yeah. No, I didn't. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> and she eventually breaks up with Andy at the prom because, well, because he's a rapist, I guess. I mean, primarily. And so he seeks out revenge against Melinda. Melinda's got this spot on campus. It's an old abandoned janitor's closet where she's been hiding out for most of the term. And he finds her in there and he attacks her. But this time she is able to scream. She's able to say no. She's able to defend herself violently, physically. And she keeps it up for long enough that the lacrosse team comes and rescues her from the closet. And so we have this sort of arc. It's an arc across the school year. It's an arc across the seasons of Melinda finding her voice again and recognizing that she can't just she can't erase what has happened to her but she can try to come to her own defense and yeah that's Mm -hmm. uh that's speak yeah i think a couple of things worth noting the book ends not entirely ambiguously but there is a lack of resolution around her future with david Mm -hmm. and there's no indication about how her parents react to the news that she was sexually assaulted because they are just not really present in that capacity. Yeah, and I have some complaints about the adaptation for that reason, I have to say. I knew you were going to bring that up. <laughs> we're not there yet, though. You have to hold on to that for longer. Okay, I promise. But yeah, the, I mean, the very last line of the book is Melinda saying, uh, let me tell you about it to her art teacher. Her art teacher has commented that she's been through a lot this year. Um, and so there's a sense that she has found her voice, but what form that's going to take is left ambiguous. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, maybe just to start this discussion off, what is your relationship to this text? Like, how did you come to it? And what was your initial reaction to it when you first read it? I think that it was not my first Laurie Hulse Anderson book. I think the first book by her I read was Winter Girls, Mm -hmm. which is her novel about eating disorders. Okay. But I came to this one shortly afterwards, and it was really... I mean, my copy is, I think, an eighth anniversary, which is kind of weird, but it's an eighth anniversary paperback. Okay. So I certainly didn't read it when it was brand new, and I didn't read it when I was myself a teenager. But I came to it when I was sort of first rediscovering YA in my mid-20s, I think. Okay. And um, I was very much drawn to Laurie Hulse Anderson's way of writing teens she doesn't do the John Green thing where they're just all the absolute <laughs> most brilliant people in the room at any moment and they all have Thank wildly competent vocabularies. One of the things I like is that every time Melinda uses a big word in her head, she um, thinks about how many points it would be worth on the SATs as a vocabulary mm-hmm. term. <laughs> so this idea of like, I don't know, I just find her teenagers remarkably real in their dialogue, in their discourse, in the way they approach things. And she also does a really good job of, as an adult reader, it's frustrating because you just want to be like, just go tell a grown-up. Oh my God, just go tell a grown-up. Just yeah. tell just tell one grown-up. <laughs> For the love of God, please. <laughs> I mean, I think we're right there with the people in Melinda's life where we're just like, just please open your mouth and say something. It will be so yep. much better. And yet, God, I so... I so achingly remember that time in my life when when that felt impossible, right? Mm-hmm. That to disclose 
anything of any value or importance or significance or trauma, like it just felt impossible, like insurmountable. And she does such a good job in this book and in Winter Girls. And I think my favorite one of hers is called The Impossible Knife of Memory, which is about a young woman whose dad is, she lives alone with her dad and he's just returned from a tour of duty in Iraq and he has significant PTSD that is not being treated. And she's just so good at writing these teenagers who are simultaneously witty and interesting and funny and you really want to hang out with them and also completely, I don't know, honest about that feeling of being trapped and unable to access help and not really knowing how to get through. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what attracts me to her. I had never watched the film before this episode. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know, right? It seems like something I would have seen. <laughs> I had never even heard of it before we did this. Neither of you have watched the entirety of Kristen Stewart's oeuvre? <laughs> <laughs> she has actually done a lot more than I realized when I was yeah. looking through her filmography. She was mm-hmm. very, very active as an actress during this time. Mm-hmm. But maybe, sorry, Brenna, I'm going to cut you off just because. Yeah, no, I'm... I was cutting me off anyway. Okay, cool. <laughs> just because I, I want to hear from Lucia. Mm-hmm. This book came out at what would have been a perfect time for me to read it, because in 1999, I think it was 2000 was the year that I actually like went into high school, right? So this is very much in my sort of timeline, my wheelhouse. But like many other books, did not read them. Mm-hmm. And so I came to this book when I was writing my dissertation, and I realized that I wanted to write about the use of silence in books of all kinds that dealt with sexual assault, because I was interested in authors and playwrights that were using silence in interesting ways. So not that people couldn't speak, that maybe they didn't want to, or maybe that speaking is complicated. And so the form of the book or the narrative voice, you know, we get Melinda's internal dialogue, represented the the complexities of silence. And I didn't end up using it because I ended up writing about Canadian literature only. Mm -hmm. But to me, it felt... Like, there's sort of, I I don't know, it's hard to say, oh, there's a timeless quality to it. But I think there is, like, that we see, especially youth who, I'll sort of preface this by saying that a lot of the activism around sexual assault and speaking has come from older folks. And by that, I mean college and university students um, and, and folks who are older than that. And I think that people often forget about how hard it is to be in high school mm-hmm. yes. and the very the very unique social dynamics of that, even with social media, where we sort of assume that there's going to be all of this disclosure and that it's super easy. But what do you do when you're, you know, Melinda's trapped for four in the next four years in high school? It's not this sort of, oh, it's my last year of high school and we're in senior year, but then I get to escape. So, yeah, I, I came to this book because I thought it was doing something really interesting in that Yes, you know, she can't, she, she, she struggles to speak to people in her life, but we as the readers start to understand why that happens mm-hmm. and to be able to access insights around those complexities for youth. I, I think that's what really drew me to it. Mm-hmm. And I agree. I think that Laurie Hall Anderson's really, really good at having a teen voice that doesn't sound, yeah, like John Green. <laughs> <laughs> For lack of a better <laughs> comparison. Which again, there there is a time and a place mm-hmm. and an audience for that. Yeah. So we're recording these episodes out of order. So we have technically just talked about Looking for Alaska. 
But the experience of going from John Green characters to these characters, oh man, it was... uh, Like water in the desert there, Joe? Just a touch. (laughs) Honestly, I feel like this book could have been very easily written today. You know, we're missing Mm -hmm. some stuff around cell phones and social media, but you're, you're both right. This feels timeless in the way that even if all of the nomenclature that the teens are using doesn't exactly resonate with what we're hearing teens say now, there is such a vibrancy and a realisticness to it. Like, this feels truly authentic, which is crazy when you think about the fact that she was not a teenager when she wrote this. I have a copy of a book where there's an extended interview with her at the end, and people said, how did you capture teen lingo so well? And she said she went and hung out in the mall food court and just listened to teenagers talk. (laughs) And I feel like it pays off really, really well. Yes, I agree completely. I love that about her. And she's also said that it's gotten easier as she's as her kids have gotten older because she doesn't have to go to the mall food court anymore. She just has like, because <laughs> I think she has between her kids and her stepkids, she has four teenagers living at home. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, she, her life is just full of teen language. But I mean, like anybody could do that, right? Go and sit in a food court. She's got an ear for what makes it teen without just relying on tropes of slang, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things that I loved the most was things like the nicknames and the chapter headings that she gives Mm -hmm. everything. It's so witty, but it's not clever in the way that it takes you out Mm -hmm. in the way that like John Green or Kevin Williamson with Dawson's Creek did, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's believably smart in the way that you you acknowledge, okay, Melinda is very astute. She's an observer, Mm -hmm. but she's also quite smart and... That's why part of the thing that I love about the narrative is that it also, it's divided into the, what, the trimesters or the quarter section so that we end each section with her grades and we can see that she's failing Mm -hmm. miserably. Yes. But then we're getting insight into her language and she's so smart. So we know that this is just another symptom Mm -hmm. of what she's going through. Yeah. Even more specifically, like I think often, you know, we talk about the teen voice but for me, I think what's so great about it is that it's a ninth grade voice. Yes. Like it feels very specifically like that transition mm-hmm. from, I mean, I don't know if middle school exists everywhere. Some people go from elementary school to high school. I did, which seems crazy now that I look yeah. at my own But kid. like that, that transition from when you're like, you're going to the place that has full size lockers <laughs> for the first time, mm-hmm. right? I think there's something really specific about that, the way that she captures those those transitions and those sort of incremental pieces of growth that like, I don't think a lot of us can identify with. Like I know that ninth grade me's way of thinking was vastly different than 12th grade me. And Mm -hmm. I mean, now it's just, but those felt like very sort of discrete chunks of time. Mm -hmm. And I think Lucia, you hit on something really important when, when you noted that Melinda has four more years with these kids. Mm -hmm. I was thinking back to all the different kind of confronting trauma in high school narratives that I've read, and they are almost always set in senior year, junior or senior year. Yeah, there's Mm -hmm. an escape at the end of the tunnel. This idea that you would have to live with this and these people for four years is an oppressive blanket weighted over the Mm -hmm. whole text, you know? Like, you never forget that. And I think part of it is what you're saying, the specifically ninth grade voice that makes sure that you never forget that that's the position that she's in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's either the senior year narrative or there's the, I transferred to a new school in a new neighborhood 
but this is a continuation of and I think that's what's so effective about it is that there's always this reference back to this party and this particular social group mm-hmm. that she can't escape. I mean, she's very lonely. Like, I feel when I read the book that sense of distance between her and her peer group. Mm-hmm. But it is that oppressive, foggy blanket that is sort of a quiet and slow desperation. Mm-hmm. Yes, right? that's such a good and painful way of putting it. <laughs> and And this idea that... You know, it's one thing when it's the transferred schools narrative, um, where it's like, no one here knows me and no one here knows what I've been through. Mm-hmm. Which we're getting. We're still getting that with Heather, oh, yeah. right? But yeah. it's yeah. on the periphery. But what floors me every single time I open this book is that no one checks to see if she's okay. Like, mm-hmm. this nope. idea that this person's personality has changed dramatically <laughs> The idea that this person you've known your entire life felt like she had to call the cops at this party and no one checks in on her. And like the isolation and the loneliness and as an adult reader, as a parent reader, the just like rage that 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 like fuels in me. And yet so very believable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think one of my favorite scenes is when she gets hauled into the principal's office and they mm -hmm. bring in the counselor. And the Mm -hmm. counselor, I think, asks her a question and then just zeroes in Mm -hmm. on the parents' relationship Mm -hmm. and starts talking about the marriage and the parents just start fighting with one another. And you're thinking, she's literally sitting right there. You could be asking her questions. You could be getting her help. And you are all failing her. And you get this real sense, I get this real sense, that if someone asked the right question, Melinda would answer it honestly. Yeah. Well, I think that's the role of Mr. Freeman, the art yes, teacher, right? he's getting there slowly. But like, yeah. And it's just this, this failure of, yeah, the principal and the counselors and her friend group, which is all very much because that's just that is how kids behave right that is how we Mm -hmm. I mean that's how humans behave but the idea that when you're that age you haven't yet most of us at that age haven't yet developed the kind of empathy that would developmentally we haven't developed the kind of empathy that would help us to to ask the questions that need to be asked but it's just it feels so helpless as a reader (laughs) I think that's Mm -hmm. why I keep coming back to it because I feel so helpless as a reader but there are those glimmers when I was writing up my notes, I realized that I always referred to David Petrakis as David Sedaris, <laughs> which not the same person, <laughs> but that there are those sort of glimmers of hope mm. and solidarity. And I think for me, like the moment where Melinda's like, I don't really want to give this presentation. So <laughs> like someone else will help me. Yeah. But it's not this like, I'm speaking for you because you, a lady, mm-hmm. are not capable. Like, it's it's actually a moment of solidarity that's also not like, but it's because I think you're real pretty and I really want to mm-hmm. date you. Like, yeah. it's, it's, it's more nuanced than that. And even though he doesn't know the questions to ask either. Mm-hmm. But he's there. I love that he's he recognizes, yeah, yeah, that this girl has not asked for this kind of help. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden now she's coming to me and I need I need to find a way to help her with that. Yeah. Oh, I love him. I do love him. Sometimes I feel like he's a little bit too... I was really happy at the end of the book that we don't yes. end with mm-hmm. her going on a date with him or going to yeah. the party or something. Because I did feel too much like he was the ray of light that could save her throughout mm-hmm. all of this. So I really appreciated that he is there, but he's not perfect. Yep. No, this is very much about her journey to find her own voice again and this sense that there are people like 
David and like Mr. Freeman who can help find the right questions but you have Mm -hmm. to she has to come to her own defense in order to get through right Um, it's such an important scene for her Mm -hmm. can we talk about the fact that this is not trauma porn because I think that that's actually my favorite aspect of this and to be honest Brenna I was really reminded of our conversation with Kai Chen Tom Mm. about not wanting to replicate trans narratives that just focus on tragedy and pain Mm -hmm. like I've been dreading this for weeks you were really Mm. anxious about it yeah because I I don't I mean uh shockingly enough no one likes rape but I was really worried that this was going to be a book just about a girl who is suffering Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. sorry I can't get excited for that so to go into this and see that this is a book that's honestly really hilariously funny at different times and is very truthful without reveling in the pain and the emotional destruction and the physical destruction Mm -hmm. as well it's so well handled it's almost more about depression than it is Mm -hmm. about the rape like the rape is an instigating point but really it's almost not the point of this narrative and I just love that well she's talked a lot about how that is part of that's part of what makes the text more universal is that the kids who write to her are not just kids who are writing to her about experiences of specific traumas but just about being depressed in high school or being overwhelmed by anxiety in high school and what that feels like and how isolating that is Mm-hmm. she's talked mm-hmm. about how she sort of as the book as she ages away from the book she's realized that that tends to be even more central to the people who come to talk to her about it than the fact that it is a book about sexual assault as well mm-hmm. yeah yeah like the scenes in the gym locker room <sighs> where she's trying to change and she's feeling insecure about her body and the way that people react and that kind of stuff could so strongly relate Mm -hmm. to feeling that way in my first year of gym where I faked sick to get out of having to change in front of people. Mm -hmm. It's really powerful, but so relatable. Mm -hmm. Lucia, you're about to say something. Um, Say it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I guess we'll talk about this when we get to the film adaptation, but sort of just putting it, I guess, putting it in a historical context where, you know, like it's published in 1999 and... I want to say that Alice Siebold's The Lovely Bones was also published kind of in that same time period. I think around Maybe a little period. later, maybe, maybe 2003. But anyway, I was thinking about all of these 1990s Lifetime movies mm. about sexual assault in high school, many of which were filmed in the Vancouver area, conveniently. Mm-hmm. But that they were all, you know, mostly cis white girls Mm -hmm. whose fathers were absent or had died or something like that and something really bad happens and it becomes this narrative about seeking justice in a particular way and for me it's interesting when I reread the book I kind of forgot that it was about sexual assault Mm -hmm. because I'm like Mm -hmm. what happened what happened to you like why why are you so sad what's going on and then it it's revealed in these really like you have to pay really close Mm -hmm. attention as a reader Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not spelled out. Exactly. Which reminds me, I feel like now as an adult, I like to think that I'm pretty good at being able to ask people like, hey, something seems a little bit off. What's going on? You're one of the best people at that that I know. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah. But I also realize now that 
I was really bad at doing that. Like, as a teenager, did not know how to talk to my friends and certainly <gasps> oh. didn't know oh how to God, no. drop little breadcrumbs to say something's wrong. No. Yeah. It's terrifying to look back on uh-huh. high school days and think mm-hmm. about the number of people who were crying out for help. Yep. Mm-hmm. And just, nope, I'm sorry. I was too busy wrapped up in my own BS. Mm-hmm. When I started graduate school in New Brunswick, I was looking for like some kind of thing to do. Mm-hmm. I had been really affected by my my uncle uh, committed suicide when I was a kid. And I had always really kind of hung up on me and Mm -hmm. I took this suicide intervention training like this intensive two weekend full weekend training course and I joined a crisis line I feel like I remember this yeah I think I mean I would have it was just after I left like CIE so and we were still I mean we not that we've had a falling out but we were we were still like emailing (laughs) all the time at that point and I I um I remember in the training (laughs) I, I was like the youngest person at this training. It was mostly older people. And um, right. I must have been 20, what was I, 23, maybe 23? Sounds about right. Yeah. The first thing they train you to do is to ask someone if they are suicidal. Mm-hmm. And Just right off the bat. Huh? Just right off the bat. It's the first thing you have to learn how to do. And, you know, I remember sitting in there and I was, I was having what I would now describe as an experience of panic. I didn't know how to describe it then. Mm-hmm. When this woman who was doing the training came and sat down next to me and she's like, what's wrong? And I was like, I can't ask somebody that. <laughs> like, what if I ask it and then it makes them do it? And she's like, that's oh. not a thing. Like, she's like putting words to people's pain doesn't create the pain. It gives the mm-hmm. pain like a place to go. And I just remember feeling so like that was both a deeply empowering idea like you can just ask, you can check in and it's not going to make them do something they weren't already planning to do. Right. But also I went home and I, I was inconsolably upset <laughs> for like the whole week in between the two weekend training sessions because all I could think about were all the times I hadn't asked. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. it's all I could think about were like all the people who I knew were in some form of distress and I hadn't asked. And mm-hmm. That training was, <clears throat> sorry, that training was incredibly empowering, also incredibly difficult. But I, it's something that I think about a lot is like, what if we told kids that they, it's okay for them to ask, that it's okay for them to check in with each other? Like, what if we gave kids the vocabulary to do that mm-hmm. earlier in their lives? Gosh, what about adults? Or adults, yeah, yeah, adults, adults, absolutely adults. I mean, yeah. think of the number of times where I'm sure this has happened to the two of you, but I'm thinking... Every once in a while, I'll just notice somebody. And it's not, you do have to be careful about the way that you phrase it. But I've gone into the office with work colleagues and been like, hey, are you doing okay? Mm -hmm. And you don't Mm -hmm. say something like, you look really tired today. (laughs) You look like a garbage dump. (laughs) Yeah, like you look like you're having a really hard time. But just saying, you know, hey, how's it going? And actually caring about the response. I've had so many people... And I'm not saying I do this all the time because I'm actually terrible at it. But every once in a while, somebody will be like, no one's asked me that in a really long time. Mm -hmm. Like, your heart breaks because people are holding on to so much pain and trauma and just exhaustion. Like, it's so hard to be a person. (laughs) And to think that someone could actually care enough to ask you about it, it's so vitally important. And I don't think we do it enough. No, and I think 
two things I was thinking about. I don't know if either of you saw that little clip of the interview with Meghan Markle, where the reporter oh, God, yes. was like, hey, are you okay? <laughs> it sounds really hard. And she's like, thank you for asking, because nobody asks if I'm okay. And she's very clearly trying to not cry. Yeah. Ugh. And I just... And you think like, oh, she's she's one of the most privileged women in yeah. the world now. It is like that doesn't make her human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think also one of the reasons why this book is is interesting. So when I was in high school, I was sexually assaulted by a, a you know, a peer in school and I told someone, a teacher about it, who did not really do anything. Oh my god. But I real I think what I've realized in the intervening years is one, there need to be clear policies yeah. about what to do. Yeah. Um, so the CBC for non-Canadian uh, listeners, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, they recently they've been doing investigative reporting around violence of all kinds in K to 12, mostly middle school and then high school. And their survey of youth said that one in seven, one in seven girls has experienced sexual assault at the, the hands of a peer. Oh I'm actually surprised it's not higher, to be honest. Yeah, I'm not surprised either. And there's no there wasn't as far as I recall, there wasn't any data about like it was very binary as well. Like there wasn't sort of, I don't think there was data about the experience of trans youth or queer youth, but teachers are not equipped. And I think that rereading speak has, and and being older has given me a lot more sort of generosity to adults who fail, which isn't to say that they shouldn't have done something right. You know, that they didn't have responsibilities, but realizing that it's very frightening for an adult, a teacher, to ask if something's going on right because if they ask and then something happens can they be held legally responsible or liable like it just i I realize now how terrifying a position that must be especially if you don't have institutional support right or the training to do that right i mean i'm thinking brother you said you went through a two weekend like intensive course and that was to operate a phone line yeah Mm-hmm. Never mind having to chaperone probably, what, 30 to 35 students in some of oh. these classrooms? Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. And the number of times I have in my teaching career been profoundly grateful for that suicide intervention training. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have had disclosures, um, disclosures while on like field schools in Europe, like away from all our resources. Yeah. If that had happened to me without that training in my back pocket, I don't know what I would have done. And I certainly don't have confidence that I would have done the right thing. It was hard enough with all of that context and all of that training. You know, a couple of years ago, the provincial government made it mandatory that all the post-secondary institutions in BC develop uh, sexual assault response plans. Really? And I was on the committee at my last institution working on that. And Lucy, what you're describing about the fear was Mm -hmm. so palpable. We would have these consultation sessions And the number of faculty who really just wanted some kind of guarantee that no one would ever disclose anything to them. Mm -hmm. Gosh. We were working fully on like a flow chart. If student says X, you do A, B, C. If student, Mm -hmm. right? Like we were trying to like give people a roadmap. And And they were like, how do I make sure that X never happens? happens. (laughs) Yeah. And it was like, well, why don't they go to talk to the counselors? And I was like, well, you teach a night class. Our counselors aren't here at night. So what happens if it happens at night? And they were like, well, can't they just come back and talk to the counselors? It's like, okay. Mm -hmm. like I get it, but come on. Mm -hmm. And I don't think 
if I hadn't been in that position, I think I would just be mad. And I am mad. Don't get me wrong. I'm usually mad at most things that happen in post-secondary. But (laughs) I, um, I knew a lot of these people. I knew them to be empathetic, kind, loving people who thought that they were motivated by doing the best thing they could possibly do for their students. And they were also terrified. And when push came to shove, they really wanted some kind of guarantee that they would never be put in this position. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I have very little patience with that because like nobody, nobody held a knife to your throat and forced you to be a teacher of 18, 19 and 20 year olds. Like (laughs) this Mm -hmm. is not something that you happened upon by accident and recognizing just the demographics involved in sexual assault, like the idea that you could be in that position and never have to. But I had lots of people say to me, like, this is why I don't teach high school. Like, I don't I don't want to have to deal with this. I'm like, I, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you, except that you are going to have to. But I also yeah. feel like that's such a problematic response, because guess what? It doesn't matter if you're an engineer or oh, yeah. a flight attendant. Like, if you're encountering human beings, the likelihood is, is that you probably already engaged with someone who has been sexually assaulted. Yes. Like, I'm sorry, but this is the sad, sorry state of this world. And to try to cover your eyes and say, I don't want to have to deal with this. Guess what? It could be your sister. Guess what? It could be your mother. It could be your aunt. It could be your best friend. Like, I can tell you, I don't even need five minutes. I could come up with more than a dozen women I know who have been sexually assaulted. I'm talking a myriad of different kind of encounters, but... The reality is, is like, we need to step up because this Mm -hmm. is BS. You can't just cover your eyes and say, I don't want to have to deal with it because it's our friends and our family. Yeah. And I think what's so difficult about it, especially in schools, (laughs) 13 Reasons Why is a great example of this. Oh my God. Oh, geez. But that there's such a big difference between passing the buck and a continuity of care. Yes. 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 And that it's perfectly okay. It's appropriate. And it's very well and right and good to say, I don't have the skills or the knowledge to help you, but I can sure as heck find somebody who does. Yes. Let me walk with you to the counseling center. And that's the thing, like this response plan was exactly that. It was like, (laughs) if this student, if a student discloses to you, you know, and it's nine to four and counseling services is open, just walk them there. Right. Yeah. But it's like, to even be put in the position of having to, to, and you shouldn't, right? Like even, okay, so I've done this one suicide intervention course. I'm not a psychologist, mm-hmm. right? I have the skills to set an immediate safety plan. Yeah. I have first aid. I have the equivalent of suicide first aid, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can set a safety plan and I can refer, but like refer doesn't mean you should go call this guy. <laughs> refer means like stay with the person until you yeah. have confidence that they are safe right yeah reassure them and it's a similar thing for what anyone who encounters anyone (laughs) from a position of trust and it's true Mm -hmm. we have good well we have some data to suggest that people who teach certain disciplines are more likely to get disclosures so Mm -hmm. god love those those creative writing instructors because they get (laughs) a lot of of the world yeah 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 yeah. art teachers Mm -hmm. social work teachers nursing teachers these are folks who are more likely because it comes up in the content of the course, English teachers, right? It comes yes. up in the content yep. of the course and therefore the capacity for, or the space for disclosure is sort of inherent. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean, it's like we should all know how to stop 
bleeding, right? <laughs> right? If a student like slices their finger open in class, do you know how to how to make it so that they don't just bleed out in your classroom? Like yes, you probably mm, do. I prefer that they not bleed in my class. <laughs> is there a way that I can prevent that from happening? I think maybe part of it is just the stigma around conversations about sexual assault. Yeah. And the yeah. anxiety that the anxiety that we as a culture feel with young people's feelings and particularly young women's feelings, like we just don't want to have to deal with them. But I think there's a level at which this is just first aid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe. Have we drifted sufficiently far from the book? Now? <laughs> Let's talk about one more thing for the book and then maybe we'll move into the film and have a free for all. But sure. can we talk about the symbolism with the trees and mm. also the scarlet letter? <laughs> I love Lori Hall Sanderson simultaneously throwing massive shade at English teachers <laughs> who make kids look for symbolism and layering so much symbolism into her book. Right? It's so good. She's getting it on both sides. <laughs> it's like, I'm acknowledging, but also, come on. <laughs> Every comma. Really? <laughs> it's, it's so good. The tree, though, right? We're talking about the tree. I presume we're talking about trees. <laughs> Only trees. The trees are literal trees. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of symbolism packed into the metaphor of a tree. And we've got the actual tree that gets part of its branches removed so that it can thrive. We've yes. got the biology class where they're learning about how to grow plants as well as dissecting open a frog and thinking about what's inside of a person. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we've got Melinda's art project, where she is forced to just repeatedly go back and think <laughs> about how trees look and function and feel. What does it all mean? I, lo <laughs> I love the front yard tree, right? Because that is, mm -hmm. that's the clearest example. There's that moment when Melinda says to her dad, why are you killing the tree? And he says, we're not killing the tree. Like there's this part of the tree that we have to deal with mm -hmm. so that the tree can survive. And it's like, yeah, Melinda, there's this thing you have to deal with <laughs> so that you Such can survive. Such a light bulb moment. <laughs> and I think it's great that it's her clueless dad who actually delivers that gem, right? Because otherwise he is just next door to useless as a parent. But the way she and her dad bond over the yard work like mm -hmm. generally, right? Like this idea that when she finally sees cleaning up the leaves, cleaning up the yard, planting flowers, like this idea that there are things worth doing that look to the future. Yeah. All of that obviously is central to her healing process. Mm -hmm. And I love that for him, he has no idea how oh, no. to connect with her. <laughs> and he sees this opportunity. He doesn't even understand why it's meaningful, but he acknowledges how important it is and he just jumps on it. It's such a good YA book dad moment too, when he's like, D -d 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 "Do you want to, do you want to go to the hardware store?" <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> no, she doesn't want to go to the hardware store. <laughs> but then, so close, so close, and yet. <laughs> but she sees it as something of an olive branch, right? Because her response is like, "No, but could you bring me back some flower seeds?" Right. So there's this yeah. idea of like, it's tentative. It's tentative, and she's she's trying to meet him, and he's trying to meet her, and they don't quite match but there is progress there and there is sort of this weird exploration of love in that moment mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i love the the discussion about the scarlet letter <laughs> if only because i also really love the movie easy a yes! and yes. sort of looking at that trajectory between what i love about easy a is that it, it uses that narrative to say 
it doesn't even matter if something's happened to you yep. specifically. The narrative is still really damaging and harmful. Mm. And so, I, and, I mean, that's a comedy speak is not. <laughs> but um, yeah, just sort of seeing that continuity is really, really lovely. I also love it because having been an English teacher of 18-year-olds, that <laughs> it's not the first time that I've heard like, well, did did Hawthorne write another book that's like all the symbolism in my books? Because if he didn't, you're just making it up. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. As a person who taught film, actually, oh, I remember my most <laughs> aggravating encounter with a student was the person who literally challenged every creative decision as, oh, well, isn't that convenient? <laughs> <laughs> like yes it is convenient because it was deliberately it's a structured this it's way a literal choice <laughs> you have to understand people don't just put words onto a page willy-nilly they also don't what? frame shots in certain ways without planning to like yeah i mean the problem with symbolism is that it's not obvious right it's mm -hmm. coded mm -hmm. but it's also there for the discerning eye which in this text like, it's so rich to have Rachel be the one yes. to say, oh, well, I don't really think anything's there. And you're like, hey, Rachel, look around. It's <laughs> right there in front of you. You're yes. just not willing to open your eyes to it. Because for Rachel, it's so much easier to just say, oh, well, Melinda's a brat. Mm -hmm. She mm -hmm. never cares to actually unpack. Like, there's no indication that they ever even had a conversation after no. that party. No, no. And to be honest, that again is such a realistic high school reaction, right? Oh, yeah. Something mm -hmm. happens and you're in a fight and you just, you never even think to address what motivated that. Mm -hmm. Is this person going through something? I don't care. My life was inconvenient. Yes. <laughs> it's such a bratty, dumb thing. Can we talk about Kristen Stewart, legend, yeah. which is what I wrote in all caps on my <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Okay. So let's oh, play the trailer. Before we trick. I just want, it's just a piece of trivia that I want to let readers know, or listeners and readers of the book know. If you like this frustrating world of this particular high school, Laurie Hulse Anderson has another book set in this high school. It's not a sequel to speak or anything, but it exists within the same cliques and social structures of this book. Is it about the Marthas? <laughs> um, the Marthas are in it. Okay. It's called Catalyst. And it's from the perspective of Kate Malone, who's on the track team. She gets like a very half a mention in speak but it's her story it's about being the daughter of a minister and the responsibility of sort of being the good girl in all mm. contexts so it's a good one mm. and uh it takes place in the same world cool okay let's run the trailer for speak the 2004 film she's not, she's not saying anything we need to explore the family dynamics number one reassure number two stay open and number three don't judge how old are you there is a code among teenagers. And on the last day of eighth grade, Melinda Sardino 911, please state your emergency. broke it. Hold the line, we're tracking your location. Oh my god, you guys, that's Melinda Sardino. What? The girl? I think so, yeah. Aren't you the one who called the cops at Kyle Rogers' party? <laughs> her friends abandoned her. Her parents couldn't understand her. I don't want to know. You can eat lunch in here if you want. It's against school rules, but I'm kind of a rebel. If you're going to be in here, you got to be working, so choose your weapon. Then she met someone. Okay, can anybody tell me what they're actually feeling? 
Good. Who could see that Melinda... You need to visit the mind of the Great One. Who painted the truth. ...had a secret. Let's go for a drive. Maybe I should tell my friends. ...that had to come out. All I know is, last year I had a sweet, loving little girl. What have you folks done to her? Huh? Open your mouth, Sordino. Open your damn mouth. I'm here if you want to talk. If something's eating at you, you got to find a way to use it. Okay. So, this is a film from 2004. It's directed and co-written by Jessica Scherzer, and the other woman who wrote the screenplay is Annie Young Frisbee. And it stars Kirsten Stewart as Melinda, Michael Angarano as Dave Patricus, Eric Lively as Andy Evans, Allison Sicko as Heather, and Haley Hirsch as Rachel. I didn't know any of the other young actors apart from Michael Angarano, and the actress who plays Rachel was apparently the daughter on ER, which mm. I was like, oh, she looks familiar, and then mm. I realized that's why. And then we have an adult cast of Elizabeth Perkins as Melinda's mother, Joyce, D.B. Sweeney as her father, Jack, and Steve Zahn as Mr. Freeman, the art teacher. <laughs> First thing I texted Joe, <laughs> What's, why, why is Steve Zahn in this movie? Yeah, um, I'll confess I didn't like him, and I didn't like the actor that they cast to play Mr. Neck. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. I just feel like they really missed the mark about who, so that that actor is Robert John Burke, who I didn't recognize, but I don't feel like either one of them really embody no. the tenets of their characters. No. Like, they're doing well in this film, but mm-hmm. having read the book, it's not good casting. Yeah, Steve Zahn's character in particular he annoyed me less as the movie progressed. I think he settled into the role somehow, or I just got used to it. <laughs> Mr. Neck, I never really liked. <laughs> I don't mean like liked him. I, I never really liked him in the role. I think both characters are a lot more complex in the book than the mm-hmm. movie gives them credit for. I feel like my big takeaway between this book and the movie is that if you have not read the book, the movie is fine to good. Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. you have read the book, it's merely okay. Agreed. Mm-hmm. But there are shining lights. Like, I do think Kristen Stewart's performance is excellent. Yeah, let's talk about her, because really, like, this is her. Yes. This mm-hmm. is her movie. Yeah. I mean, she's oh, really yeah, good. I'm throwing it over to you. <laughs> legend. Legend. Kristen Stewart, Legend. Before, I was I was texting Brenna, and I said that my solution would have been to cast Stanley Tucci as Mr. Freeman, mm-hmm. uh, because my solution yes. is always to, to cast, cast Stanley, Stanley Tucci. The Tucci. <laughs> the Tucci. Yeah. Uh, YA's best dad. By far. Such a good dad. So yeah, that was my solution for that. <laughs> I never saw the Twilight series. So Speak is the earliest of her works that I was familiar with. Okay, um, yeah, so she was in Panic Room, David Fincher's Panic mm. Room with Jodie Foster two years before this, and oh, then this okay. is four years before Twilight. Cool. But she was in a couple of other YA films, like there's a movie, like a heist film called, I want to say Catch Me If You Can't, but that's not right. <laughs> uh, but she was also in Zathora, which is the unofficial Jumanji sequel. Oh. Yeah, which is on our list, Brenna. Oh, or you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. I think what I love about both Kristen Stewart and the character mm-hmm. okay. is the the way that their their affect and the emotions are read in a certain way. Like Kristen Stewart is kind of 
quote unquote unlikable because she's not she's not like Hillary Duff, right? Like mm-hmm. she's not this very expressive, emotional in a particular way. And I think that's what I also love about her as Melinda. I mean, for me, like Melinda doesn't come across as unlikable. Like she's not quiet in a defensive way. She's just quiet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that I think that's a hard note to hit, right? Because you can play that role could have easily been played as quiet, but sort of emotional in other ways or body language that conveyed a sense of despair or something. But I love that there's a sense of kind of like not neutrality. That's not the word that I'm looking for, but that you can't quite pin down exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. I agree. She read very tense to me, like the mm-hmm. whole movie, her body just looks ready for fight or mm-hmm. flight the whole time. Like she yeah. could bolt at any moment. Yeah. I also really love that she is 14. Mm-hmm. The entire cast of the entire movie cast looks so movie. young. They're all the age they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And it's extremely refreshing. It's so rare. It's so rare. And especially in a text where, as we've talked about, this idea of being at the cusp of high school, not mm-hmm. on the way out, of just figuring out the beginnings of who you are. Like all of that is really important. If they had randomly aged up the cast like they always do, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot that would have been lost. Yep. Also, the fact that she is 14 and turning in this performance is pretty remarkable. Okay, so let's get this on the table. I've come out in Kristen Stewart's defense on both of my podcasts now. <laughs> she is an amazing actress. I feel mm-hmm. like this, Lucia, you're right. This is very much a role suited to her and her personality. So I think in a lot of ways, this is just a very good fit. But to say that, oh, well, she's a bit sullen, so she just acts sullen in this movie, like, you're doing her a disservice. Mm-hmm. She is incredibly compelling and totally believable in this role. Yeah. And she's doing it almost non-verbally. Mm-hmm. Like, think about the amount of dialogue that usually propels a film forward. And then think about the fact that we get some voiceover, not as much as I was expecting, to be honest, mm-hmm. But this character virtually never speaks. Mm. And she's still completely captivating. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. No, she's great. She's absolutely great. I can't picture a different Melinda. Yeah. Just to come back to the look and the youth, I have to say, I think one of the most effective scenes in this entire movie for me is when she's sitting in the cafeteria with the Marthas mm. and Heather. And, oh, and he he's over top of her. Over and <sighs> he looks like he could be about eight feet tall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she just shrinks. Mm-hmm. It's so upsetting. And again, <laughs> she says nothing. I literally just withdrew into my hoodie over here. That <laughs> scene is so, I find it's that so scene so chilling. It's so creepy. But mm-hmm. it's great because it's not like he's this menacing, hissable no. villain, right? Mm-hmm. Like he, if you're looking at him from anyone else's perspective, he's just a hot jock. And from his own perspective, right? I so yes. I so profoundly remember the way it felt to be in the presence of those boys who just took up space mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. never thought twice about it. Not that it doesn't still happen like on airplanes and such, but I encounter it far <laughs> less in my life. But the number of times in high school when there would just be a boy with his arms blocking your locker or like mm-hmm. across you so you can't get to where you want to go or just holding you without your consent or permission. Yeah. The um, number of times in high school that teenage boys who, you know, for whatever social capital reasons of the school have the right, because it's not all teenage boys who get to do this, 
but a boy like Andy is able to put his body wherever he wants to put his body. And Mm -hmm. I so remember what that felt like, how small and menacing. And from the boy's perspective, he's not intending to be menacing. He's not intending to do anything, Mm -hmm. right? He's just always put his body wherever he wants to put his body. And so in that scene, you see the dichotomy of experience there so so perfectly. Mm -hmm. I think the other one that really spoke to me is when she's painting by herself in Mm -hmm. the art room and he comes in looking for Rachel Rochelle Mm -hmm. and he just keeps advancing closer and the camera stays in Mm -hmm. focus on her so he's actually out of focus in the background and moving ever closer and it's honestly it's like a horror movie it's Mm -hmm. shot like a horror film where she is about to be murdered Mm -hmm. by this individual and then rachel calls him out and it's fascinating they cut so in the book you get the impression that melinda just hears their conversation because of course we're only in melinda's head in the book Mm -hmm. whereas the film opens it up a little bit naturally but we cut to them walking in the hallway and rachel is berating him saying you know i was looking for you for 30 minutes and where were you why were you here and he just pushes her up against the wall and covers her mouth Mm -hmm. And I feel like if I had to watch this as a teenager, I would have just been like, oh, he's just, you know, he's shutting her up. Mm -hmm. As an adult, I was horrified. Mm -hmm. Brenda, you said that you recoiled into your hoodie. I braced myself against the couch because it was such an aggressive, controlling move. It just repulsed me. Well, and it visually echoes the scene of the rape, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's it's such an explicit visual echo of what he did to Melinda that it's breathtaking. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like the movie does a really good job of recreating some of these iconic moments from the book. My problem with it, having read the book first, in hindsight, I almost wish I had done it in reverse, but it feels a little bit too much like the movie is paying homage to the book in a series of vignettes. Mm. And I don't know, it was very interesting. So I watched this with my husband, who has not read the book. And the movie ended and he was like, that was actually really good. And all I could do was think about this conversation that we're having right now and thinking (laughs) about how there's just so many things that you feel like the film doesn't quite nail because it just doesn't have the capacity to sink you into Melinda's experience in the same way. Mm -hmm. Do we maybe want to talk about the end? Oh, we sure do. Oh, yeah. So the the film has a different ending. Mm-hmm. I mean, in general, the film has a different relationship with the parents. And I think that yes. this is a very important distinction because it's not that the film just changes the ending so that all of a sudden Melinda is talking to her mom mm-hmm. out of nowhere. Her mom is much more present throughout the film. Yes. Yeah. In the book, her mom is just the worst she's completely absent she only cares about the business Mm -hmm. whereas in the film she is present and she's just more of that traditional harried mom where she's got to you know like hey are you okay but i've got to go so there's two things that happen at the end that are different in the film the first is that mr freeman sees the inside of the janitor's closet just Mm -hmm. before the attack happens Mm -hmm. and the second is that Melinda discloses everything to her mom in the car on the way home after the attack. And what frustrates me about both of those things is even with the additional buildup of the mother character, I don't feel like either of those characters has earned Melinda's Mm -hmm. trust to the degree that it would require for both of those things to occur. I think it's too easy Mm -hmm. 
I can see yeah. why they did it with Steve Zahn's character. Like he probably wanted more to do. And I, and I suspect <laughs> they wanted a, a less ambiguous ending for Melinda's yes. character. Absolutely. But in both cases, it left me feeling like, like the film hadn't understood what Melinda's mm-hmm. silence was really about. And as I say, because in both cases, I didn't feel like the characters who became the recipients of the disclosure earned it. Like, I don't know why Mr. Freeman needs to have access to her closet. I really don't understand that choice. I think it's because in the book, she ends up actually producing one synthesized piece of work that Mm -hmm. she submits, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas in the film, she never gets there. No, Mm -hmm. which is frustrating also. Because it happens I, after the attack in the book, mm, right? I disagree. I, I almost like the idea that she can't just put it together into one final piece. Like, she's still working through. She's She's got all these different iterations, and she hasn't figured the one path out yet. So I actually mm. almost appreciated that more. You're absolutely right. I feel like it was like, oh, we've got Steve's on. Let's use him <laughs> a little bit more. Even up to the point of, you know, like, let's have him get fired yeah mm-hmm. like why who cares this is not his story <laughs> exactly well and it makes him much more of a martyr figure instead of a stable yeah. figure right like in the book he's the stability kids come back and find him to say like oh my god i got into art school or oh my god i'm going to new york he's a stable force for the weirdo kids at the school right mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that's his role in the book but that's not as interesting or exciting as getting fired for your school board art or whatever yeah. <laughs> whatever's happening there that felt like a much more traditional ya move right mm-hmm. like yeah. oh he's the rebel faculty member who dances to the beat of his own drum and then he ends up getting fired for it yeah You're like mm-hmm. great but it's not his movie <laughs> i think what i do like about that scene in the movie and it's like the one part in the movie where i i really like him and his character yes is just sort of seeing him tear up mm. and seeing the look in her eyes completely different than it has like her eyes are completely different in that scene than they have been throughout the entire movie Mm. and the idea that she she is in an enclosed space with this guy and Mm -hmm. she clearly feels safe Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i think that's a really lovely counterpoint to what happens next right like i think that that it's complex for her right like it's Mm -hmm. not that all of her relationships with men are completely that that they're not all the same Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's a nice little moment yeah, I think the scene with her mom, you're right, Brenna, I think it's not just to address, we talked about this before, when it comes to films, there's a reticence to end on a note of ambiguity or even mm-hmm. something that suggests a bit of fatalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't think that you could make this movie and get away with the idea that she has not confided mm-hmm. in an adult. And since you're not going to have that be Mr. Freeman... I think the mom makes an easier choice. Yeah. Yeah. I don't love it because you're right. I don't think it feels entirely earned. Even Mm -mm. Brian, my husband, he actually really latched on to the scene where Melinda tells off Heather. Oh, I love that scene. And the mom Mm -hmm. sees it happen. And you see the mom and the mom smiles because she's kind of like, yeah, there's my daughter. And she says all the things in the movie that she only thinks in the book, right? Yeah. 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 So that, I think worked but yeah the ending does feel just a little too pat mm-hmm. and interestingly enough so this is actually not a theatrical film this was made by showtime and it was released on lifetime mm-hmm. so it never went to theaters it only ever played on tv to i think the film's detriment because i think a lot of people look at this and think of it as a made for tv movie in mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. negative disparaging way 
but it does have that almost ending where you're kind of like, well, now everything can be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is unfortunate. I do want to highlight one other scene that really stuck out to me. I really loved the Christmas scene. Oh, me too. Mm-hmm. So when her parents give her the notebook mm-hmm. and the pens and she... Charcoal, I think, right? Sorry. Yes, the charcoal. So she opens <laughs> up the charcoal and we get, you know, the flashback. Yeah. And then she comes back and the way that Kirsten Stewart acts, where you can tell this is her opening, right? And mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. so, I think it's so well adapted from the book where she says, this is my opportunity. I'm going to say something. I'm going to say something. And then when it shuts down, just the simple visualization of her closing mm-hmm. the charcoal back up, like, mm-hmm. nope this is not the right moment. I can't do this right now. Mm-hmm. I thought it was so simple, but very, very effective. Agreed. Totally yeah. agreed. Uh, just to go back to the ending, I think one of the things I like about the film, after Andy attacks her in the closet and the girls' lacrosse team is like, mm-hmm. get out of there. Yep. Um, which I just like. I just love a lot. I'm like, oh, there is a black character in this <laughs> film. And she's yes. going to break down the door. And yeah, so that was great. But I think, in the book, after that scene, maybe that's just a function of books, but it felt so abrupt. Yes. But yeah. what I love about Melinda's slow kind of walk down the hallway and people, everyone kind of gets fuzzy, is that it just gives you kind of a breath. And I feel like I really needed that breath. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the book, I was just like, oh, okay. Um, we're and now done. we're back to figuring other stuff out. But yeah. I yeah. just love that that Andy's being dealt with by the lacrosse team. Mm-hmm. And she's just, like, walking down the hallway, and it's just a really nice moment. Mm. I did like, too, that she uses her art to physically damage him. Yeah. I'm not suggesting that we need to see violence against mm-hmm. uh, perpetrators of sexual assault, mm-hmm. but I did like that the whole film is about her inability to speak, and she yeah. ends up getting, quote-unquote, her revenge by blinding him Mm -hmm. i thought it was a nice kind of battle of the senses in a way Mm -hmm. i'll confess one of the things i really missed in the adaptation was i love the idea that melinda builds a quiet resistance against andy by writing Mm -hmm. his name on the bathroom stall and you get the hint that she's going to do that when she does her you know exchange students are ruining this country (laughs) You know, I thought that was funny, and I thought it was a good precursor, and then it doesn't pay off, yeah. and I was frustrated with that. And again, I don't think you would even notice if you were just watching the film and not have read the book, but knowing in the book that that's so instrumental for galvanizing the women against Andy yeah. and mm-hmm. this idea that everyone knows, but no one is talking about it. And that the silence is not only Melinda's. Exactly, because when... The captain of the, I'm assuming that she's the captain of the lacrosse team. It's like, Mm -hmm. everybody knows what you did. I'm like, when? When did you find out? How? You'd barely have MySpace. You don't (laughs) MSN Messenger? We ICQ'd each other about it. Yeah, because this is a world without cell phones because it's 2004. So how how did they figure it out? It didn't work for me. I think we're just Mm -hmm. meant to assume that Rachel told everybody, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which then what privileges Rachel because she's more popular. Everyone Mm -hmm. just believed her. Mm -hmm. I don't like that. No, I like the idea that, yeah, there's this girl's bathroom underground resistance happening. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And also like, yeah, I mean, people do write things on bathroom walls in high school, right? All the Mm -hmm. time. Why they're always painting them over. (laughs) Can I talk about the comic a little bit? Yes. Yes. Just real briefly. I just want to talk about why the comic works so well. So it's an Emily Carroll adaptation. 
Mm-hmm. It hits all the same beats as the book. There's no major uh, transgression from the original text. But the reason why I like it so much and because and the reason why I think it works so well is twofold. One, Emily Carroll has really like almost a gothic sensibility to her art. Uh, so the entire text is black and white. And right. mm. that just seems like a great choice. Yeah. And there's mm-hmm. something about her art that always feels to me like I'm walking through really dense forest. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of sensibility of the book as well. Like not not that there are forests everywhere, just that sense of having to work through um, visually the space. The other reason I really like it is because comics being what they are, you are afforded far more silence in the comic than you can have in the film. So, you know, in the film, like, yes, Melinda is quiet, but there's still music cues. There's still Mm -hmm. background noise. There's still... I found the music cues in the film almost insufferable. I actually (laughs) actively hated them. They're very made-for-TV movie. Yeah. And there's other characters talking all the time, right? Whereas in the comic, it can be silent. Like, it can Mm -hmm. be completely silent for pages Mm -hmm. and pages in a way that I think works really well. The comic is updated a little bit in that some of the characters do have cell phones. There's some there's some oh, cell phone okay. chatter happening. And Anderson doesn't really describe the characters racially. And I think Joe and I have talked about this before, about how much I read all the characters as white because yeah. I'm white and I'm reading a white default and mm-hmm. how much of that is actually coded by the author. But Emily Carroll creates a very, like a multi-ethnic school. And she's like, nope, I'm going to update this to accurately <laughs> reflect the real world. Well, to accurately <laughs> reflect Syracuse too, right? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. we're talking about a place that would be quite diverse. Right. David Petrakis is black in the comic. See, I actually always read him as Asian. Oh, interesting. He's black in the comic, and I find that interesting because it shifts his character from being someone who stands up on behalf of people to someone who stands up for himself and Mm -hmm. on behalf of people, which I think Mm -hmm. makes him a really powerful ally and also role model in many ways to Melinda in the comic. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I totally recommend checking it out. It's quite long because it really does cover every single beat of the book. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? But I guess for me, the book felt very close and the film doesn't just Mm -hmm. by nature of the fact that you get other people's stories and you get to see the world and the Mm -hmm. comic brings it all back in again to being a very close and quiet narrative. So strongly recommend it's uh, Emily Carroll's adaptation of Speak. How does the how does it end? Like, does the ending of the comic follow the book? It ends. It follows the book. Yeah, basically. Mm. Exactly. So. I'm just going to, I'm going to loudly turn to the page because it's a library <laughs> copy. So it's got that crinkly cover. Mm. You see her art. That's the nicest thing about the graphic. Oh, oh okay. nice. You see her art and you see her art progress through the, right. from the stick trees at the beginning to, oh, to like sort that. of charcoal Because I did like that in the film a mm-hmm. lot. There's something to be said for visualizing something. But I think when you're talking about art, it really helps to yeah. have something in front of your eyes that you can take a look at. So the last scene is her and Mr. Freeman, and he says, "Time's up, Melinda. Are you ready?" Uh, and he makes that lo- he makes that crack about you've got to stop crying in my studio. The salt is like acid; it ruins my supplies. <laughs> and then you see her thinking, "My tears are dissolving the last block of ice in my throat." And he's looking at her final picture, mm-hmm. and he says, "You've been through a lot, haven't you?" And then the next scene is a full page rendering of her artwork, which is. Uh like a charcoal tree in a charcoal forest with sort of snow starting to fall around the edges and a big open spot in the middle where two birds are flying through. Hmm. And she thinks the frozen stillness melts inside of me, shards of ice drip onto the floor and vanish in the puddle of sunlight. And then the last line of the book is a completely black page with white text that says, let me tell you about it. Hmm. Ooh, I like it. That sounds really good. (laughs) Strongly (laughs) recommend. It's really, really good. 
That sounds really good. I will say quickly, the one thing I do like about the film is that her mom's like, you don't have to talk about it if yeah. you don't want to. Like, yeah. It, it yeah. doesn't, it's not like, oh yes, I'm listening. Like, yeah. tell me everything. <laughs> and and you don't get, you don't get her, like she she starts talking about it and then it fades out. Like that's. Yeah. Which I love. Yeah. I love that. I do love that. And I think that it definitely, like I can see how it would appeal to the Lifetime audience and why I understand why it aired on Lifetime. <laughs> mm-hmm. Even though, yeah, it was an independent film. But I do appreciate that it still allows for her to that she consents to talking about it's it. It's her choice, yeah. I yeah. think it's that's really choice. important. Yeah. Yeah. I also kind of get this vibe from her mom that, like, it's okay if you don't want to talk about it. Because I don't want to talk about it. Because I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Reflective yeah. of that slightly reticent adult figure that we talked about. Right? Yes. And it's that awkward car moment where it's like, you couldn't reach over to give someone a hug because, like, the seatbelt's there. So you're yeah. kind of, mm-hmm. like, just sitting beside shift, each other. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's good times. One thing I did like, I enjoy things like hair and costume in films because I mm-hmm. think that they can be really visually powerful. One thing that I kind of picked up on, it took me a while to figure it out, but her mom wears a lot of clothes with like leaves and flower motifs on them, hmm. which I thought was nicely tuned in to this idea that Melinda will eventually discover mm. that gardening and like oh. also trees and stuff is part of her rejuvenation and her way to come out of it. Like so it cues you to this idea that her mom will ultimately become her confidant. Hmm. Hmm. Symbolism. (laughs) (laughs) But did they actually mean for that to happen? Who knows? I have one piece of trivia before we do bingo. Okay. We have an author cameo in this film. We sure do. Mm -hmm. The lunch lady is Lori Hall Sanderson. Yeah. Amazing. (laughs) That's all I want to say. I like that she calls herself out in the the Q&A at the end of the book. She's (laughs) like, yeah, look for me. It's a great performance. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Okay, uh, so let's do some why. Hey, bingo. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Lucia, you're the guest. You should go first. Um, transformative art teacher. Wait, are you making up your own categories? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm doing it. Get out of here. Get out of here with that. (laughs) You gotta play the board as it's written, lady. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, like, parents that are useless. Absentee adults, maybe? Absentee adults. I mean, it, yeah. And I mean, that's one of the things that's interesting between the the level of absence that is different between book and the film. book yeah. and the film. Yeah. Yeah. We see that a lot with the parents trying, given slightly more juicy roles in the film versions. Like, mm-hmm. marginally. Marginally, yeah. Yeah. Um, abuse, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just a just, just a soupçon just, of abuse. Just a soupçon. Just a soupçon. <laughs> Base notes. A bouquet. I'm going to say allusions to classic lit. 100%. Uh, I'm going to say gaslighting. Yeah, mm-hmm. sadly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm really annoyed slash upset about how much use we're getting out of the gaslighting. I know. It's like every book. I think those are my two, though. Mm-hmm. Joe, did you get something different? I guess the only other one that we could maybe consider is if we want to consider Steve Zahn as a stunt cast. I was going to say that, yeah. No, he was. I mean, don't forget it was 2004. Yeah. He's not an insignificant actor. And no. mm-hmm. if people watch Weeds, you would be like, oh, Elizabeth Perkins. But let's be honest, I don't think most people can pick her out of a lineup. She's one of those people who I go like, oh, you look really familiar. But no, Steve Zahn was a total stunt cast. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that helps to make the film get made. There's no other explanation for why he's in it, for one thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. 
Okay. Yeah, I think that's it. It must maybe growing apart, but it kind of feels like they've already split up. Yeah, by the time mm-hmm. we get to it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so are we calling it for speak? I think so. Yeah. Lucia, should our listeners wish to find you on the interwebs, how might they go about that? I am at Empathy Warrior, uh, and I will be there, yelling into the void, <laughs> as I want to do. If you want to yell into the void alongside Lucia, you can use the hashtag HKHSPod to talk about this episode or any other. Um, if you have something longer you want to send to us, it's HKHSPod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Joe, if folks want to find you on Twitter, where would they look? You can find me at B stole my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And next week, Joe, mm-hmm. it's a big week for us. It is, yes. One year. One yeah. year, Brenna. One year we've been doing this. Feels like our whole lives, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Only when I make you get up at 7 a.m., right? Uh, and we are doing the book that started it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to be talking about Watership Down. It's probably the most important text for you and I because it's the book that our YA literature class in university completely centered around. (laughs) It is. And finishing it was a major goal of my second year of university. And now I'm going to read it in a week. That's how life changes. (laughs) So the book's from 1972, uh, the film from 1978. And don't read it on the bus because you will sob. You will sob your guts out. Yeah, it's another tough one, not gonna lie. No. It may look disarmingly like it's just about bunnies, but it's about quite a bit more than that. <sighs> and as with any text about animals, it doesn't end well for someone. No. So, uh, until next time, get your watership down and start reading it now if you do read along with us, folks, because it is long. <laughs> it is a bit long, yeah. <laughs> Let me but not it's good. understand it's really that. Good. It is really good. It is really good. So uh, with our thanks to Lucia for guesting today. Thanks for having me, friends. It was great to have you here. Uh, And until next time, I'll see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye.